Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much. Sandra and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, a treatment update on mantle cell lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well. And um, it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have over 369 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so from both rural and urban and suburban areas, as well as we have international participants today from Canada, India, Ireland, Pakistan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really um, a bit of a global call as well, and good to have all of you on the call today. Today's program is made possible by Pharmacyclics LLC and Janssen Biotech, Inc., and I want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ajay Gopal. Dr. Gopal is Professor of Medicine, Division of Medicine, Medical Oncology, the University of Washington. He's a member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Clinical Research Director and Associate Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Gopal is going to be addressing overview of mantle cell lymphoma, treatment options for newly diagnosed, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be able to speak today uh, regarding lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma specifically. Uh, as Dr. Messner mentioned, uh, I'm going to start by just speaking a little bit about an overview of mantle cell lymphoma, and I suspect many of you are all very well uh, versed about this, but I will start in broad terms. So mantle cell lymphoma is a relatively rare kind of lymphoma. Uh, lymphoma is a cancer of lymphocytes or kind of white blood cells. Uh, these are B cells uh, that are malignant. It makes up about 5% of all non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, so that does make it a bit challenging to study because it's relatively rare. It also has some interesting features uh, that uh, it tends to be more common in men. Certainly, we all take care of many women uh, who uh, suffer with mantle cell lymphoma, but in some studies, it's about 80% male. And this is a big question that we haven't really sorted out as to why there are many more men with mantle cell lymphoma than women. The average age is around 60 or 65 of diagnosis, and many of these diagnoses are in incidental findings uh, because of the uh, predilection for mantle cell lymphoma to involve the GI tract. So it's an uh, 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 unusual location for lymphoma in general, but pretty common in mantle cell lymphoma to involve the, the colon or stomach or other parts of the GI tract. It also typically will involve the, the, often involve the blood and then most commonly the lymph nodes. So mantle cell lymphoma, to make the diagnosis, uh, there are specific tests that are done on a biopsy, uh, typically with something called a cyclin D1, uh, to, sh to prove that it's a mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and uh, the other interesting characteristic of mantle cell lymphoma is the spectrum of 
how aggressively it can behave. Uh, and this will get into some of the treatment options for newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. Sometimes it can be a very indolent disease that might only have some abnormal cells in the bloodstream, kind of like a chronic leukemia, like a CLL. And other times uh, the lymph nodes can be growing very quickly, uh, necessitating a very aggressive treatment. Um, so in part, because of this variability of how mantle cell lymphoma can present itself, um, uh, as well as the relative rarity of mantle cell lymphoma, uh, there have been a number of different options that have been explored in terms of initial treatment, and a lot of this has to be tailored to the individual patient. So these options can range from a observation approach um, in certain situations, really no treatment uh, is the best approach to just observe and closely monitor, and there are actually data saying that this is very reasonable for folks that have, particularly those with the indolent or very slow-growing uh, mantle cell lymphoma that's not causing symptoms. Uh, other strategies involve using uh, chemotherapy plus uh, drugs like rituximab, um, all the way up to more aggressive approaches where we use very intensive chemotherapy plus rituximab, followed by high-dose therapy and autologous transplantation to try to really extend uh, the initial remission in uh, treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. So there's a big spectrum of approaches in terms of how we uh, treat folks with newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. <clears throat> And I'll say with that spectrum of options and the fact that there are not a huge number of studies comparing head-to-head -head, uh, which options might be better, it's really important to make sure that you have open communication with your uh, healthcare team. Um, I think uh, Dr. Haberman and I would both agree that because of the relative rarity of mantle cell lymphoma, uh, it's very reasonable to consider uh, consultation at a, a referral center that sees lots of folks with mantle cell lymphoma and also asking about uh, clinical trials. Um, clinical trials uh, are very heavily uh, vetted, have uh, gone through lots of review and often uh, can provide the uh, best uh, options for uh, patients uh, that require treatment with mantle cell lymphoma. So maintaining communication, asking about clinical trials, and really communicating what your goals are. Some people do prefer to be very aggressive and take an intensive approach with stem cell transplant if they're young and otherwise healthy. And others uh, would prefer to try to defer therapy as long as uh, is uh, reasonably possible. So really communicating with your healthcare team about what your goals are, what your preferences are, um, will help in the uh, decision-making uh, regarding initial therapy for mantle cell lymphoma. I, uh, I want to just mention a couple of other points that have been looked at as part of initial therapy. Um, when we study any disease, we want to show that one therapy is improving outcomes compared to a historical therapy, and we do these things called randomized trials. And in mantle cell lymphoma, probably the most uh, compelling data from a randomized trial has been the use of a, uh, maintenance with a drug called rituximab. So there have been uh, both retrospective data as well as two prospective randomized trials 
that have shown that after our CHOP chemotherapy, which is a kind of chemotherapy that can be used for mantle cell lymphoma, uh, as well as after high-dose therapy and autologous stem cell transplantation, uh, the use of rituximab maintenance has uh, translated into improved uh, survival. So in those settings, uh, we usually think of uh, offering rituximab maintenance or, or something similar, at least, uh, to, with the hopes to improve the long-term outcomes of folks with mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, we were just talking earlier about data from ASCO, and there was not a, a huge amount of data on mantle cell lymphoma, but there was a uh, actually a meta-analysis looking at all the studies regarding rituximab maintenance, and it did appear uh, if we put all the data together, that it uh, further supported the use of uh, maintenance rituximab, at least after autologous transplant and uh, after um, this uh, RCHOP-type chemotherapy. So, so that's something else to discuss with your uh, healthcare provider, the role of rituximab maintenance in one's individual uh, situation. Um, I think uh, with that, I, I may just uh, pause and uh, see if Dr. Messner uh, would like me to make, say any f few words or maybe turn it over to Dr. Uh, Haberman. Well, it, uh, did you want to add some other few words or did, um, or, um, um, or shall we turn on to Dr. Haberman and then take questions? Um, sure. Okay, then I want to thank you, Dr. <laughs> okay, well, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Paul. That was an excellent presentation. Wonderful. You set the stage for the program today. Wonderful overview. And we now, um, have, now uh, Dr. Haberman um, um, is, um, Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, um, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman is going to be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, emerging treatment approaches and clinical trials, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's really a privilege to be here with you and Dr. Gopal. I have tremendous respect for, and it's really nice that there are 369 sites on from around the states, uh, Canada, Pakistan, uh, Indian Islands, India, the UK, and Venezuela. So the first area to talk about are the treatment options for relapsed refractory disease. And over the last decade, we have been incredibly fortunate in this disease to have a number of drugs come along that have been approved by authorities in it internationally in different countries, not only in the United States. I had the privilege of writing the first protocol for relapsed refractory disease in lenalidomide uh, in, in, in aggressive lymphomas, and it eventually was FDA approved in mantle cell lymphoma, with about a third of patients responding. And this has resulted in a tremendous number of studies where the drug is combined with uh, bortezomab, bendamustine, dexamethasone, and other drugs. And we have different data that's being presented uh, on these topics over time. Interestingly, it has been combined with rituximab in those upfront patients that are not eligible for transplant and the group from out in New York reported a very high response rate uh, of 92%, and their follow-up data at the recent uh, American Society of Hematology meeting uh, last December uh, reported that 61% uh, of patients remained in remission. 
we have done other studies ourselves, as other institutions have done, and this was a non-FDA approved trial, but Everlimus uh, was active in about a third of patients. And this drug, unfortunately, will not be going forward in any types of lymphoma, but has had some very fascinating activity. In bendamustine has been combined with rituximab, and in the initial report by Dr. Myron Churchman and his group, over 80% of patients responded who had relapsed refractory disease. And that was really a, a remarkable observation at the time back in 2012 when it was first presented. Bortezomib is a drug that has been FDA approved as a single agent with about a third response rate. And that was kind of the first drug to come along as a single agent uh, after the uh, CHOP and RCHOP studies. In Looking at what has evolved, uh, what's really changed where we are with this disease is the whole field of BTK inhibitors or Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And the first was ibrutinib. And this drug was published, uh, the results, the initial results in 2013, and about two thirds of patients responded, and it didn't matter whether or not you'd received bortezomab or not, uh, patients did uh, equally well. The data was updated at the uh, American Society of Hematology in December, and with a median of three and a half years follow-up of patients on ibrutinib with relapse refractory disease in a pooled analysis from mul uh, multiple uh, studies, uh, four of them in fact, uh, the overall response rate was essentially 70%. Now, there is a toxicity associated with this particular drug. It's a pill, and what's really remarkable in this whole story is that both lenalidomide and ibrutinib are pills, and there is, though, an association of about 6% of patients getting atrial fibrillation and about 7% of patients having some significant bleeding. And so we carefully monitor patients, and if these things are occurring, then uh, we take patients off that particular drug. What's really fascinating is that another drug has come along, a calibrutinib, and it was just published in December of 2017. And by our new criteria and the way we look at things, about 80% of patients respond, and the complete remission rates are about half that. And whether or not this drug is going to be significantly better or to have significantly less bleeding and or atrial fibrillation is, is still ongoing. The initial uh, uh, rates of bleeding might have been a little lower, but uh, the, the, some of the data is starting to catch up just like it did with the brutinib. There are other new drugs coming along that are really fascinating, and these are in early trials. And palpociclib uh, is a drug that has some very interesting activity. The BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax is in trials. And anti-CD38 antibodies, which are active in a disease called multiple myeloma, such as daratumumab, are quite active. 
I'm sure Dr. Gopal will likely comment on this in our question and answer uh, period, but CAR T-cell therapy is also uh, being evaluated in this disease. And there are, at this time, there, it is not approved uh, in, uh, in the uh, United States uh, nor in other countries, to the best of my knowledge. But there is very interesting early preliminary data uh, that initially came from the University of Pennsylvania studies, which suggested that there may be some very genuine activity in this disease. In those patients who have relapsed and have refractory disease, uh, one of the things that was being looked at very hard 5 to 10 to 15 years ago, and, maybe, and even longer, was allogeneic bone marrow transplantation where a patient received either a, 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 a sibling, a, a family member, uh, uh, or a, an, an unrelated donors. Uh, and the MD Anderson was very interested in this particular approach. And interestingly, the 10-year progression-free survival was, uh, was a third. So a third of patients lived 10 years after receiving an allogeneic transplant. The problem is the upfront toxicities with this drug with this approach, uh, and that the mortality rates in the first 100 days are still approaching 20%. Well, what about some other things that could possibly be done? The natural history of this disease from the beginning uh, demonstrates to us that patients can have large spleens, and some patients can get very, very large spleens or massive splenomegaly. And we published our results looking at that and uh, uh, taking the spleen out in very selected patients and by, and I believe it, it by very experienced surgeons uh, can result in, 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 in some very good results. Another regimen that has come along and it was just published in uh, the uh, March of, uh, of 2018 uh, is a regimen of ibrutinib and venetoclax, and in patients with very uh, aggressive disease, uh, the complete remission rates were were, were 42 percent. Uh, when in this population, the prediction was that it would be 9 percent, and these appear to be durable. Uh, and so, this is another drug which will be uh, available uh, potentially nationally and internationally. Uh, for use uh, in, in studies uh, and then potentially for FDA, for regulatory approval uh, nationally and internationally. The next question that, that, that I was asked to address were emerging treatment approaches and clinical trials, and Dr. Gopal has already talked about this, and the I would like to make three points about clinical trials before a couple pieces of data. And the first is that this is really the only way we can improve outcomes in these diseases. Uh, different drugs with different mechanisms of action have really changed things. In my career, I've had the privilege of being on papers on 21 different drugs and different clinical trials, and this has really made the difference. And we I was involved in the two regulatory trials that received FDA approval in the United States with rituximab and large cell lymphoma and low-grade lymphomas, and then that then moved on to mantle cell lymphoma. 
the third point is is that these trials are very heavily regulated and very heavily audited and I'm still sometimes surprised almost every week at how concerned patients are about is this you know do people watch are people careful and uh, uh, I think we really are and we just released a commission on toxicity at the European Hematology Association meeting uh, 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 the week before last where we believe that, 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 that there certainly are improvements to be made and patient-reported outcomes need to be improved and other things. But uh, these, before their regulatory approvals in different countries uh, all over the world, are very, very heavily looked at. So we looked at a, a very interesting uh, question, and we presented this at the ASCO meeting in 2016, in an abstract entitled Participation in Clinical Trials to Improve Outcomes of Patients with Relapse Lymphoma. And in that, we had uh, in our uh, uh, 611 patients with lymphoma that had gone on clinical trials uh, with relapse lymphoma. 156 were mantle cell lymphoma. And what was really fascinating is that the patients with mantle cell lymphoma who had relapse disease who went on a clinical trial, had an improved overall survival uh, at, at two years. Now, we were fortunate to come into this during a time period where there were new drugs coming along, but it's very important that you also understand that we had no idea these drugs were going to have any activity at all. And so it really points out, I think, how important all of this is. So the last issue is quality of life concerns. And what's happened in my career is that when I started out this disease, the median survival was 36 months. And now I have patients living over 15 years. Some of them have been on multiple clinical trials plus multiple other treatments, uh, relapsed after transplant early. And I think it really talks about and, 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 and says that this disease has become more of a chronic disease uh, than, than it was before by, and by all means. And so we do have to be concerned about quality of life. We are concerned about peripheral neuropathy, for instance, with different drug regimens uh, in this disease and other toxicities. When looking at quality of life at diagnosis. It's interesting, we just published a paper that Dr. Kerry Thompson, our, our group, was the first author on that reports that the quality of life at diagnosis predicts overall survival in patients with aggressive lymphoma. And this mantle cell lymphoma is an aggressive lymphoma. And we followed the different domains of physical, social family, emotional, and functional well-being along with general overall quality of life uh, measures. And the strongest associations were total uh, quality of life and functional well-being. And what's really fascinating is, is, that, is that this metric is associated with, with overall survival. And so to take care of the physical, the social family, the emotional and functional aspects of life uh, is really important. And lastly, and I think something that 
really contributes to quality of life uh, is the level of physical activity. Uh, we have, uh, are, have a, uh, a publication that reports that the level of physical activity before and after lymphoma impacts the overall and the lymphoma-specific survival. Patients with a higher level of usual physical activity during adult life have significantly better overall survival and lymphoma-specific survival after lymphoma diagnosis. And we have these, uh, this is a three-year follow-up, and the higher the physical activity in three-year survival is associated with an improved overall survival. I've had this bias throughout my career that it's important to work out and exercise. And by exercise, we're not meaning just moving around the house and the, our day-to-day -day activities for 98% of us, but a true, genuine exercise program appropriate to our given, our given age categories. So my final suggestion and recommendation to all involved would be uh, to really increase physical activity uh, that will not only likely impact overall survival, but also quality of life. So with that, I turn it back to Carolyn. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. That was really wonderful and actually such an interesting um, conclusion to your uh, remarks. I'm sure there'll be questions about that. That's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing within people's control, and that's uh, a very interesting um, concept in terms of physical activity. It comes up in a lot of the programs, and so um, very helpful to hear this. Um, and so now we do have a time for questions. Before we take questions, so I'll start thinking about your questions. I see some of them are coming in online already, but um, we will, uh, Sandra will explain to all of you how to queue for questions, but I just want to say a few words um, about the services you can access from Cancer Care. Um, some of you may be, um, in addition to obviously getting your ex extensive medical care, you also may be having some, you know, concerns, just practical or emotional concerns, and so I just want you to be aware that Cancer Care is a national organization, and we do provide um, psychosocial services to people throughout the country. And to some extent, um, some of the services are available internationally, and I'll explain which ones are. Um, we do offer in the United States both um, practical and financial assistance, and we do have a copay foundation as well. And we do offer counseling services both on the telephone and online. Um, and so, um, and we offer um, support groups on the telephone and online. We have over 120 online support groups, and indeed, we have online support groups specifically for people with blood cancers, both people living with blood cancers themselves and their caregivers also. Um, so that's that can be a resource. And for people internationally, I know that um, many of you are participating in our online support groups, and indeed. Um, uh, and some may choose the telephone support groups. The telephone support groups do happen in real time. The, um, uh, the online support groups actually are, you can post any time of the day or night. All of them are facilitated by, by trained oncology social workers who are on staff here at Cancer Care. So that, um, and then um, we also do um, uh, have, of course, these programs, which are obviously available to people anywhere in the world. And um, we do have publications on our website which you can download materials from. So those are resources that you can all access. Um, in addition to that, um, we definitely would encourage you to take advantage of the services. You can simply call Cancer Care for those of you who wish to use our 800 number, which is 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And, of course, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. 
in coping with um, mantle cell lymphoma or any type of cancer or lymphoma or any type of cancer. And so we do want you to know that there are many organizations out there as well. And at the end of the program, you will be getting an evaluation, which will list many other organizations in addition to cancer care, uh, many of the blood cancer organizations like Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, other organizations that you can access um, help from as well. So we do want you to know there are many, many resources out there for you. Um, and now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, uh, Sandra to explain to everybody how to go for questions. We can take them both online and on the telephone. So, um, Sandra. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, we actually have, um, to start with, we have a question. This one will be for um, Dr. Gopal. Um, for indolent um, mantle cell uh, lymphoma, is rituximab a reasonable choice for early recognition of recurrence found on MRD testing? If you could explain a little bit what MRD testing is in case everyone doesn't know. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an excellent question. Uh, so first, just to clarify uh, some terms, uh, MRD is, uh, usually stands for either minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease, meaning very low levels of uh, detection of lymphoma. Uh, there have been studies published showing that using uh, rituximab as a uh, treatment for the first detection of recurrent mantle cell lymphoma uh, can prolong the time before patients need to get other therapies. And I think this is something that we, we talk about, we discuss with our patients and sometimes consider. I think obviously any recommendation uh, really would need to be individualized to the uh, specific situation. I think the the larger question in lymphomas in general, uh, which includes mantle cell lymphoma, uh, is whether or not uh, it, the treatment of uh, MRD with rituximab translates into more mileage out of the rituximab. I think the other challenge that we face now is because we do have data, as I mentioned, that rituximab maintenance is actually beneficial uh, for many situations uh, in the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma, uh, the initial treatment either after our CHOP chemotherapy or after stem cell transplant, um, patients are already getting rituximab, uh, so development of or detection of minimal residual disease emerging uh, while getting rituximab maintenance might mean that some other strategy uh, would need to be employed. So, But it's something that we, we certainly think about, and uh, I think that's a, that's a good question. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Hablum, do you want to add anything to that as well? So, so maybe to add to that uh, question, the, uh, uh, in, in the United States we have the what's called the FIT trial, which will be taking patients will get any treatment up front and then assess their MRD, and this is being done in the cooperative group setting. And then if you're negative, then you get maintenance rituximab. If you're not, then, you, then you're assigned to auto stem cell transplant and maintenance rituximab. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the, probably one of the more important questions in mantle cell lymphoma right now internationally. Secondly, I wasn't quite sure how the question was being asked, but I think just to, to lay it out, I think rituximab is a single agent up front. Uh, there really aren't many people in the field that, that do that. 
if you're going to make a, a, a commitment to treat, uh, you need more than just single agent rituximab, and there's not an awful lot of data on there out out there about like that like there is in uh, in uh, uh, less aggressive uh, follicular and marginal zone lymphomas, of which it's very active. Yeah, I would I would concur, and I would I think the point. I'm glad you brought up the FIT trial because that study, as I as I recall, uh, does allow people to enroll even after they've completed all their therapy. So if somebody has completed bendamustine rituximab or RCHOP and at that point wants to enroll at the end of their induction therapy, as we call it, you can still enroll in that trial, and it does provide for. Uh, a very sensitive way of detecting minimal uh, residual disease uh, paid for by the trial, if I'm remembering correctly. So I think that's a, that's a really important trial to consider, and I agree it's a, it's a, it's a critical uh, question. Yeah, I think both of those statements are true. It's an ECOG study, uh, 4151, and uh, mm. I'm on the steering committee. And uh, we've just, some of the eligibility criteria have changed over time, but it's really been opened up to allow patients on that that have had other that have had upfront treatment uh, uh and so it's different than other clinical trials. That's quite excellent. And on different parts of the country in terms of the trials being conducted so that it's fairly accessible or uh the fit is only being conducted as it would be only conducted in the United States, Canada mm-hmm. and in Ireland because the Irish Cancer Oncology Research Group is part of ECOG Akron. Thank you. It's a wonderful resource. Well, these are great questions from great, great speakers. Fantastic. And I went over another question. This one is for Dr. Haberman. Um, are there any studies um, ongoing or completed on the effectiveness of acalabrutinib on relapsed patients that were previously on abrutinib? Um, the, the short answer to that is that we don't have good data on that at this point in time unless... Um, uh, Dr. Gopal knows that um, the question came as is come uh, came up over at EHA and um, uh, and we just had the mantle cell consortium meeting, uh, which was in uh, uh, takes place with the Lymphoma Research Foundation and with international representation, and I there just is not a lot of data on this right now, and maybe uh, Dr. Gopal knows differently. Yeah, I agree. I'm not aware of any uh, actual published or presented data. I think we have, we probably all have anecdotes of uh, folks who certainly when if one can't tolerate uh, ibrutinib, uh, we've seen a calibrutinib be uh, useful and effective. And uh, certainly I have one anecdote of a patient who appeared to be not, not responding to ibrutinib, who did respond to a calibrutinib, but there were some questions about whether well, what else was going on at the time in terms of absorbing an abrutinib and things like that? So, uh, uh, but uh, there really aren't any uh, any uh, good prospective data. Excellent, thank you. And we do have a telephone question. Um, so, um, Sandra, do. Thank you. Our first question comes from the line of Christina M. Your line is now open. Hello. Hi, Christina. Your question. Hi, yes. Um, I was just wondering if you guys have any information or thoughts on 
kind of like nutritional plans to follow, either just for lymphoma or mantle cell in general, um, you know, specific kind of nutritional plans or things that are helpful. Well, thank you for that question. Um, I'll ask both speakers. Dr. Kopal, do you want to start? And, um... Sure. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of this, we, we work with fellows in the clinic, and I think they always hear the same things that we end up uh, saying because it's a very common question. And uh, I often tell my patients that I wish I could just say, eat more carrots and you'd be fine. I, I don't think it's just really not that simple. Uh, there are data, with much of the data actually coming from Mayo, uh, looking at the importance of having normal vitamin D levels in lymphomas in general and many B-cell malignancies. So I usually, we usually check a vitamin D level and uh, for those of us living in the northern parts of the United States, this becomes an issue in the in the winter time. Uh, so we try to maintain vitamin D levels. And as Dr. Haberman had mentioned, recommend uh, general fitness, uh, balanced diet, exercise. Um, but I'm not aware of any uh, data regarding specific uh, diets uh, for lymphoma. There. There was a provocative uh, uh, study that we believe presented in abstract form at ASCO looking at the impact of a ketogenic diet, uh, but I think that was very, uh, so this is so low-carb type diet, but uh, very, very early data to know whether that makes a difference or not. So uh, vitamin D, I think, is probably the most uh, reproducible uh, element in terms of diet. We've been looking at this at that question, and then we've done some interesting work also in our SPORE grant uh, going back and looking at, we, we tried to do some very intense dietary studies uh, in lymphoma risk and looking at risk as it, it, with data coming out of the Iowa Women's Health Study, and then uh, dietary habits uh, as best we could ascertain by historical uh, data that we'd get from patients uh, uh, and it's a very hard thing to uh, it's a very hard thing to to study uh, 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 but it's interesting that if you look at it there's patients with higher dietary green leafy vegetables and cuniferous uh, cuneiform type vegetables seem to have a less of a risk of have less risk of of, of getting uh of, of developing lymphoma and so the that's the other piece I add on that uh probably in increasing your vegetables you don't not advocating becoming a vegetarian but uh if your diet is not very heavily weighted that way it's probably it's at best not going to hurt you as best we understand from things and we've tried to look at this in some different ways some of it uh, unpublished uh, different supplements and so forth as best we know they're they're not going to hurt you but as best we know they're not going to help you as far as improving overall survival awesome. thank you thanks um, and we have another question in front of our online participants um, and um, for Dr. Haberman um, to start after our CHOP and stem cell transplant, how long is it recommended to stay on metoxin for? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I, I, as a general rule, and I'll have Dr. Gopal comment too, because a general rule when it comes to maintenance for tuximab, and I've been involved in these studies since the mid-'90s, uh, uh, two years is a, is a reasonable 
kind of number. The half-life of rituximab is two to three months, so given administered every two to three months, even every three months, is very, seems very reasonable in, in off-study uh, 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 platforms. Um, but I, I, that's the other issue is is that there is uh, neutropenia associated with prolonged rituximab, and secondly, uh, sinusitis, and these can become not insignificant. Uh, these are these are significant toxicities, and so that does you know limit a long lifetime or five-year type use uh, of the drug. And I'd, uh, I'd ask Dr. Gopal his thoughts. Dr. Gopal? Yes, I, you know, I think I, I completely concur that a lot of times this gets individualized. Usually it's in the two-year range, but we do, for folks who have lots of problems with uh, recurrent infections, um, we will often uh, uh, stop this early. We looked at our data in a, in a retrospective fashion uh, regarding the impact of uh, rituximab maintenance, and there didn't really appear to be a huge amount uh, impact uh, regarding the duration of maintenance. So even folks who had just gotten a few doses uh, still fell into the uh, benefit and survival group. So uh, it's not completely clear that going for longer uh, is clearly better, but we usually try to target uh, about two years. I believe three years, I think, was in the uh, randomized trial, but uh, um, yeah. We do uh, keep keep an eye on patients and how they're doing with the rituximab maintenance. Thank you, thank you. And um, um, we have this question from our online participants, and this one would be um, to start with with for Dr. Gopal. Is there anything new in how indolent mantle cell lymphoma without symptoms is approached from a medical standpoint? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. Uh, and I suspect, and I would be very curious to see what Dr. Haberman's thoughts are on this. Um, the uh, it, we really sit down with patients and have a long discussion regarding their goals of therapy. And I think it becomes very similar to how we address other indolent, indolent lymphomas, where clear uh, observation is clearly the standard of care if you don't have symptoms. So um, typically, many of us will follow patients more closely early on clinically for symptoms, look at their counts, potentially imaging, uh, but as things uh, remain stable over time, uh, we may set out the intervals where we're, we're monitoring patients, um, lengthen the intervals. Uh, in terms of specific uh, molecular testing, uh, we can, I usually think about diseases that are more common that we observe where we know molecular testing uh, predicts overall outcome but doesn't necessarily change our approach. So in CLL, we know there's specific genetic abnormalities that are not good. But even patients with CLL who don't have symptoms, uh, even if they have the high-risk molecular features, we often will. So um, there's something in mantle cell lymphoma called P53 that we can test for, which also is similar to this 17P in CLL, uh, but it doesn't necessarily tell us that we immediately need to initiate therapy. Uh, that said, the observation periods tend to be shorter in mantle cell lymphoma uh, than in, in uh, indolent, uh, truly indolent uh, B cell lymphoma. So uh, um, again, we do individualize it to the patient's preference, and uh, but really monitor patients clinically for indications for treatment. Uh, but I'd be very curious to see what uh, Tom has to say. It 
it's a complicated question and story, and I think the as AJ just pointed out, the problem in the disease is we don't have good biologic markers to tell us what we should do. And the P53 is one, I think, probably what moves most people to treat who uh, physicians to recommend treatment would be the amount of disease or the progression of the disease on scans because uh, most patients are, are pretty asymptomatic with this disease overall. And if you go back to the original paper by Dr. Peter Martin and his colleagues out at Wheel Cornell, um, about half the patients that were observed were treated uh, by, uh, by uh, at, at one year. Um, but this up to 30% of patients can have a more indolent mantle cell presentation. The KI67 is another marker on, on the lymph node uh, uh, tissue, especially, or bone marrow tissue that can be of help if that's uh, higher, uh, over 30%, that the, then uh, might be more of an indication uh, to treat or when to treat. But uh, it is very, very uh, uh, open as to how different individuals manage uh, these, uh, this whole uh, concept of observation in mantle cell lymphoma. And I just had a patient referred uh, a very complicated other tumor who has now also mantle cell, and so the question is when to treat. And it brings up the point that the, there are other factors that come in when to treat or not to treat, uh, and and it can be somewhat complicated uh, at different times. Well, thank you. That's so um, excellent question and excellent response to it. Um, and we have another question, and this one is for um, for Dr. Haberman, um, and it has to do with um, managing skin rashes. Um, uh, how do I Manage or control skin rashes is the question. How can I? How, what can I do to control relieve my skin rashes? Um, that's a complicated question. Um, and the, the the whole issue of skin rashes in mantle cell are uh, is it related to um, the disease itself? Is it a manifestation? It, it do. Does a patient have, for instance, an entity called pimphigoid, which can be associated with mantle cell lymphoma? And uh, in general, if you have that and you treat the mantle cell lymphoma, that rash responds. The third type of rash is totally unrelated. Um, the fourth, to have cutaneous involvement with mantle cell lymphoma is ultra rare. Uh, and... Um, I guess I'd, I'd also defer this question to Dr. Go, to, 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 to Dr. Gopal, uh, as to uh, other other answers to uh, the complicated question. Yes, I think uh, you know. There, again, we need we rashes are very common in in oncology and in, in treating patients with lymphoma, and trying to sort out the cause of the rash is probably the best strategy uh and then once that's identified you can try to address uh the treatment so if it's uh mantle cell lymphoma related in one of these conditions as mentioned like uh, uh pemphigoid uh then you got to treat the underlying lymphoma if it's drug related then 
depending on whether they're all alternatives. So with ibrutinib, we now have ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, so that could be potentially interchanged if one's having trouble with one or the other. Um, uh, and if one can't, then we just try to treat the rash symptoms, such as with topical uh, steroids or something along these lines. But it's really a matter of sorting out the cause of the rash uh, as best we can and then um, trying to address it. Excellent. You know, this might be a good time just to comment. Um, you're, you're both at major cancer centers and both um, have specialized in mantle cell lymphoma um, in terms of treating it. And could you, could you both comment on the importance of um, our audience being aware of the fact that it, there is, it is a great specialty area and um, and sometimes whether they consider a second opinion, um, how, you know, the treatment of their of their mental cell lymphoma. So I, I, Dr. Haberman, if you want to start with that one, but it just... Um, it's a very interesting uh, issue and question, and I, I relate this back when I'm asked to uh, I, I, to myself and myself if I had an uncommon clinical disease, which I think we can put mantle cell in that category. If if five percent of malignancies are lymphoma and five percent of lymphomas are mantle cell, that it's, it's not terribly common. And this has also been a field, uh, mantle cell especially, that has really been evolving and evolving rapidly. I mean, within five years, we had four drugs that were FDA approved. Uh, and then we started to have trials come out of the Europe, uh, the, uh, the trial that Dr. Gopal alluded to, the transplant, the randomized uh, transplant study. Um, and there, if you're not in this, the field, it is extraordinarily difficult to keep up with all of this. This just isn't something you can get out on the internet and, and sort through quickly uh, and efficiently. And so I, I encourage patients with the less common lymphoproliferative diseases to to seek consultation at a referral center of, of, of where there isn't interest in lymphoma. Not all referral centers have individuals interested in lymphoma, but there are different uh, websites, uh, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and some others uh, where you can find access and, and information uh, or just call. Um, but uh, I, I do think when it's uncommon and when there's a lot of change going on, the problem with uh, the, the era where there's a lot of change going on is that what's in publication, in formal print, is essentially about two years behind on what Dr. Gopal and I were to already know of what's going on, if not even longer. Uh, and so I think that's why it's important. Excellent. Very good point. And Dr. Gopal, do you want to add? Excellent. Yeah, I would really just concur uh, with uh, the situation of a rare disease with rapid progress, as well as if one has a, a, a malignancy in general where the standard therapies are not doing what we would hope. Uh, those are the situations where a referral to a, a major center uh, would be appropriate. I think mechanistically it would be a little different depending on where you live, but I think 
most uh, the the NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers for the U.S. and NCCN sites are really distributed across the United States, and I think most. Um, community oncologists do have a way that they get in touch with their regional uh, cancer center, uh, and they usually have their go-to person for various diagnoses. So I think really saying how, if you want to work through your physician, or you can look sort of on the map and just see who you, where your uh, local and or closest uh, NCI-designated uh, comprehensive cancer center, you're probably not going to go wrong. Um, with that approach, considering that there are a lot of other uh, centers that don't necessarily fit in that category, still have ex great expertise in uh, lymphomas. Excellent. That's very important for everyone to be aware of that, and really to uh, and also I think um, to Dr. Um, Holliman's point as well, there are two organizations that are out there that are particularly name recognition: the Lymphoma Research Foundation and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, both of whom have call centers and really through and also very active websites with really state-of-the-art information. And you'll, in your evaluation, will be getting links to those sites and information about them, about their call centers, because they, um, in addition, can be very helpful to you also as you navigate um, this terrain, um, and it's, it's really important. Um, so, um, and I know some of you live in all different places in the world, in, in the United States as well, and some have access, some don't, but this will give you just fingertip access um, to amazing resources um, that you might not have known about, and even your healthcare team might not know about. So that's really, especially if they're not at a comprehensive center. Um, and um, we have another question. Um, uh, I'll give this question to Dr. Haberman. My father is 70, rather frail, and recently diagnosed with mantle cell. The doctors have chosen what seems to be a very aggressive treatment plan. With his age, is this aggressive treatment the best option? Could you comment on that? I'm not sure what the aggressive means, but uh, if I'm seeing someone who's uh, 70 and frail now, I, I really look. I, I look at the data of the rituximab lenalidomide trial from uh, the, the New York group uh, and really uh, think of implementing that. Um, lenalidomide is pretty well tolerated. I think it, what we Neither of us talked about as we in this disease we we kind of look at sixty as a cutoff as a general cutoff not a not hard and fast but under sixty sixty and under we think about the aggressive approaches the transplant approaches and so forth and uh, m d anderson has a a regimen that incorporates abrutinib with other chemotherapy, that kind of thing. And then uh, over the age of 60, think about uh, as, as a standard of care, uh, bendamustine rituximab with maintenance rituximab, as Dr. Gopal talked about. Um, the uh, uh, And then if I don't think someone's going to tolerate bendamustine rituximab very well, uh, then I'll move them to the uh, to the rituximab lenalidomide unless I, we have another study open. Excellent. And Dr. Gopal, do you wish to add? Yeah, I would concur with that strategy. A lot of this has to do with just sort of evaluating the level of frailty. Uh, Bendamustine rituximab is actually pretty well tolerated. Uh, but uh, lenalidomide rituximab is also another another option, with the caveat that it's not exactly on label uh, for mantle cell lymphoma. So sometimes there can be some uh, uh, out-of-pocket challenges with the lenalidomide. Thank you for including that. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And actually, if there are sort of other pocket expenses, there are organizations that can help with some of that. Um, so, um, so we want to be sure that people get access to people who can help with that as well. Often in the centers themselves, there are people who can help with that, and sometimes the other nonprofits can assist with that as well with their copay foundations and others. So that just to be aware of that. Um, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been outstanding, and and really just and also very compassionate in how you presented this information. Very understandable to everybody. Um, and also, I want to thank um, all of our participants who asked great questions both on the phone and online. So really, um, really a great sense of your questions and concerns. So we we've um, attempted to address many of your concerns. Nevertheless, um, there are some questions that we still have not gotten to. So as we round up the program today, I just want to actually, first of all, address any of you who still have remaining medical questions. So we definitely recommend that you access your healthcare team. That, of course, is they're a wonderful resource for all of you. Your, your healthcare team, of course, is a great place to start, but I know many of you like to get information from other resources. And I often, so in this instance, we're going to recommend both the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Leukemia Lymphoma Society as resources for you to access further information. They all have call centers and terrific materials for you, um, and they also have websites. And, and when you get your evaluation at the end of the program, that information will be there. In addition, we do often recommend the National Cancer Institute. They do have a website with a live chat feature where you can post a question, and their information specialist will be helpful to you as well. And for those of you who might like to pursue counseling services or join a support group or get some practical financial assistance, definitely you can contact Cancer Care. Um, our, serv- our oncology social work staff are here to help you as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, um, we prefer that you, you not feel that you're alone. We want you to know that there are many, many organizations out there and your healthcare team that can be remarkably helpful to you. And to not hesitate also to call your healthcare team if you have a question. If you have an appointment in a month and something is bothering you, call them today. So if you take something away from this program, please do do that. Don't don't wait with a symptom or something bothering you. Um, call your healthcare team. That's really important. Um, also, if it's a f- before weekend and something's troubling you, call your healthcare team. If you're thinking of taking a trip somewhere, check it out with your healthcare team in terms of anything you should be doing in preparation for that. So all these things just to normalize your life and to be able to get on with your life in the way that is most productive for you. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.